0: Just a brief reminder at the top of the show that we're supporting No Shave November, a cancer research and awareness charity that asks you to help fund the efforts of folks like St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, the Prevent Cancer Foundation, and Fight CRC by foregoing the usual batch of shaving supplies and instead donating the cost of those items for the month while letting your beard grow. You can find the donation link in the description for this episode. It's nearly time for the big American holiday all about family and food. And possibly football. American football, obviously. Not that nasty, smelly, no-good European stuff with no pads and constant activity and cunning defensive plays and positioning that can flip in an instant to equally cunning offensive play just depending on who has control of the ball at exactly what moment in a game that insists, nay demands, that if you say you're going to play for 90 minutes, you will play for 90 minutes, even if we have to tack time on to the end of it to make sure that a full 90 minutes is played instead of about 12 minutes of actual game in a two-hour time block. No, obviously, American football is the far superior game. Probably that's why nearly every country in the world plays it, And every four years, there's a big tournament that involves nearly the entire world. And the women's teams are just as competitive as the men's teams, if not more so. Especially since they don't have to show up on the field wearing lingerie in order to be taken quote-unquote seriously. You can see how much better American football is, clearly. No, wait, that's the other one. Sorry. Now, obviously, part of the traditional Thanksgiving Day football game is the food. Not just the food on the table for the big sit-down meal, but the sorts of food that show up as a sort of pre-meal meal for all the football fans to enjoy. Generally speaking, there are about two or three different sorts of chips, or crisps, for our international listeners, usually a thin fried potato or corn product known chiefly for its crispy crunchiness and its ability to scoop up various types of sauces, dressings, and dips. There's generally some sort of fried chicken parts of the wing and leg variety, confusingly named Buffalo Wings, even though no buffalo has been near them, and buffalo are notoriously flightless. And usually there's some sort of prepared, previously frozen baked snack, which is not much more than a pastry shell wrapped around a bit of sauce, cheese, and unidentifiable meat. It tastes nothing like a pizza, and doesn't in any way resemble a roll, but is called a pizza roll nonetheless. But, since it's all washed down with a typical mass-produced American beer... No one cares anyway, because if flavor mattered, we wouldn't be drinking this swill anyway. Its chief advantage being the ability to kill the taste of absolutely anything else. Someday we'll have a chat about beer. But that day is not today. However, there is one thing all these foods have in common. And the strange thing is, in amongst all the adrenaline and physicality involved in watching one of your two favorite teams get trounced up and down the field by your not-so-favorite team, it represents a reversion to a much earlier time in which mankind was itself far more physical and far less refined than we are today. A more primitive state, which some would argue American football is a throwback to, with all its violence and supposedly military overtones. See, all the pizza rolls and chips and wings are what you call finger foods. That is, they are almost exclusively meant to be eaten without the benefit of dining utensils, using only the tools God gave you, your hands and fingers. Which is, of course, a sharp contrast to what is expected of you at that much bigger and more formal meal yet to come but what you don't have room for now because all those pizza rolls smelled great, but weren't very satisfying in small quantities. Instead, in just a few minutes, you're going to be expected to sit down and practice your best manners in front of Aunt Edna by making proper use of those three little developments which you don't really think about, unless it's to work out which one is the salad fork, which is the soup spoon, and whether you're working with a butter or a steak knife. It's all a lot to worry about, but eventually, we're all thankful for our tableware. This is GM word of the week, and I'm fiddleback. We know we just promised you that we'd talk about all three utensils: knife, fork, and spoon. Honestly, though, we barely need to discuss the knife as we have already done so at length almost every time we've mentioned any other cutting implement in our past episodes. See, knives were among the very first tools we as humans made. Basically, it goes rock, axe, knife blade, one leading on from the other. Knives are well over two and a half million years old and occur in almost every prehistoric civilization you care to mention. It's a very short step from working out how to make axe blades from rocks to also incidentally making knife blades at the same time. Cleave a rock just so and you get a cutting edge. Cleave it just so again and you're well on your way to the most basic tool in the world. And for the longest time that was it. We used blades not just in the catching and killing of animals that looked delicious, but also in the preparation of those delicious animals for consumption And what did, in fact, more often than not, turn out to be delicious circumstances. But consider for a moment the true work of the knife. At its most basic, the kitchen knife is a weapon that, over time and through effort, has been civilized enough to take its place in our daily lives thanks to its application in food preparation. And the reason we've allowed it to do so is because our teeth just can't handle the work past a certain point. So instead, we sharpened rocks and cut meat from the bone in order to spare our relatively weak teeth. What's remarkable is that we had the knife in several varieties about one and a half million years before we worked out how to control fire. Which means we used knives before we really worked out how to even cook food on a regular basis. Finds in Ethiopia indicate that Stone Age humans had both cutters and scrapers for removing meat from the bone and tool marks in those bones show that there was a level of sophisticated knife use present that required not only a basic set of skills to use the tool properly, but also a careful series of decisions made about which tool to use when and how to apply it. And of course, ask any knife bro, advanced or not, and they'll tell you at length that once you work out how you want to use a knife and on what you intend to use it, The next logical decision is to decide what material is best suited to the application you have in mind. Which is exactly the same process our earliest ancestors went through. It's not sufficient to take just any old rock and flake off a chunk to use as a knife. It wouldn't do to use any old thing for such a vital piece of equipment. Favorites included granite, quartz, obsidian, and flint, and even then, as now there was a debate over which materials were best. Obsidian blades were ultra-sharp and easily worked when made properly, but hard to find and brittle if not used carefully. Whereas a granite knife blade might be durable, long-lasting, and abundant, but much more difficult to work and sharpen. If you'd like to experience all the joys of a similar debate in modern times, just open your search engine of choice and type in the words... Which blade steel is best? Good luck, have fun, and see you next year. Which is also why we aren't going to even begin to consider the debate about which kitchen knives are best. Besides, the only real answer is whichever one you like using. And the size of the rabbit hole you go down trying to figure out which knife is best is only slightly larger than the one about which blade steel is best. What matters is... Every chef needs at least one good knife. By the medieval period, knife making and knife use had become arts of necessity. It wasn't just limited to cooks and chefs. Everyone had their own knife, and everyone took their knife everywhere with them. And we're not talking about using it as a means for self-defense, rather it was your personal eating knife and it hung around your waist wherever you went. Each knife was custom-made for its owner, and so took on the duties of both a utensil and a fashion statement. You'd no more use another person's knife than you'd use his or her underwear. So ubiquitous and second nature were they that at least one group of monks had to be reminded to take their knives off at night thanks, we presume, to a series of nighttime accidents at the monastery in which they were cutting themselves every time they rolled over in their sleep. Knives were the primary and often only utensil at mealtime. You used them to cut cheese and bread, to slice meat into slightly more manageable chunks, to crush nuts and seeds, and to shred, slice, mince, dice, peel, and otherwise shape and prepare vegetables and fruit at the table before eating them. Not to mention buttering your bread. Anything that couldn't be knifed into submission was eaten with your fingers. And if you did not have your own personal knife during the European Middle Ages, you had nothing else at table to rely on. There was no other utensil for you to use. But the problem was, much as everyone was used to a knife and skilled in its use, it was still deemed very impolite to actually stab anyone with it while dining. And since most table knives at the time looked like big sharp daggers, it was a temptation hard to resist in the settling of arguments. And besides, dagger-style knives were leading to other complications for polite society as well. In 1637, Francis Cardinal Richelieu was so upset by the sight of a dinner guest cleaning his teeth with the sharp tip of one such knife that he ordered all knives in use at his table to be made blunt. In 1669, Louis XIV outlawed pointed sharp dinner knives as a whole from the entire country. And suddenly, on the whims of fashion, everyone in Europe became super sensitive to how everyone else was eating and how terrible it all looked. Taking meat by hand from a common plate, drinking soup straight from the bowl, and using the same knife for everything now seemed so common. And Vulgar. Suddenly, sharp knives at the table were entirely gone. And dull knives, supplied by the host to everyone, were the way to go. And so, what we call the butter knife became commonplace. Which, as you'll no doubt have noticed, is terrible at spearing food and lifting it to your mouth. Fortunately, a new device had come along to help out. Well, we say new, but really, the fork had been around for a long, long time. The problem was, it wasn't an eating tool, it was a cooking implement. Its chief place of use was around the hearth, and the great big roasting pits we spoke about in our episode on the oven. For much of the fork's history, and it goes back only slightly less far than the knife in the form of the traditional fork branch, For much of its history, it was used to help turn and present meat to the fire, or move around large slabs of food from one place to another. Even its use as a stabilizer when cutting large pieces of meat at the table wasn't a sure thing until relatively recently. It just wasn't taken seriously as a table implement. Part of the reason was because it reminded people too much of the devil's own pitchfork, which made people both Puritan and not uneasy and the dangers of fork use were manifold. One story tells of a Byzantine princess who married the doge of Venice in the 11th century and was roundly cursed for using a fork. She was later said to have died of the plague, as punishment for not using her hands and fingers as God had clearly intended. It wasn't true, of course, but it didn't help the fork's image any. Two hundred years later, the story was still making the rounds and putting people off the tool's civilizing influence. In some places, using a fork to eat with was seen as so obscene, it was equated with sexual deviance and antisocial behavior, and used as a pejorative term as in, he's nothing but a fork eater. In fact, it wouldn't be until the 17th century that forks got any respect at all. And that was all thanks to the Italians. Think for a moment, and see if you can work out why. That's right. Pasta. The pasta trade in Italy was already well established by the Middle Ages, and everything from macaroni to vermicelli was being brought to the rest of Europe. But, surprising as it may be, you really had to be a pasta-eating expert to make it work. The small stuff was more or less fine, But the longer pastas were more of a problem. See, you only had a device called a punteruolo to pick your pasta up with. And it was just a single spike-like device around which you were expected to wrap your long noodles. So something had to be done. And we imagine the thought process went something like this. This spike is really hard to wind up this spaghetti with. But maybe if I hold two of them really close together, it's a bit easier. Look at that. Well, that's a bit better, but it's still not great. Maybe three. No, no, too awkward to hold three of them and wrap up my pasta. Unless, maybe if I had one device with three spikes? Fantastico! And so it was. In fact, the fork was so successful at handling pasta that the Italians kept using it for every other meal, too. These little forks so called to differentiate them from the huge kitchen forks in use in most of Europe and England, so impressed travelers to Italy that they started bringing them home to their own countries and using them there. By 1700, forks were in use almost everywhere in Europe, having finally shaken off the earlier stigma. And of course, they presented the perfect solution when you were confronted with the newly ordered blunt table knife. The fork could do the job of transferring food from plate to mouth much more neatly than either finger or knife could. Which solved everything but the soup. We suppose you can try eating your soup with a knife or a fork, but we hear the experience is, at best, unsatisfactory. No, to do it properly, you need a spoon. Fortunately, once again, our earliest ancestors had solved the problem ages ago. If you remember last episode's discussion about pots and pans, we mentioned that some anthropologists thought the earliest version of a device intended for boiling water was the shell of a mollusk, say a clamshell. However, as we and others have pointed out, there's not a lot of room in a clamshell for boiling enough water to really worry about let alone loading it up with carrot, potato, a bit of onion, and a slice of antelope. It just isn't worth the bother. But take that same clamshell and lash it to the end of a stick or a piece of bone, and all of a sudden you have a tool with which you can make soup. You just have to make it in a different container and use your clamshell device to stir it all up with. It's a makeshift spoon in its earliest form. Gosh, those cave guys and gals were clever, weren't they? The Romans even had a word for spoon, cochleare, that was derived from their word for shell. And they took the spoon to new heights by developing little spoons for eating tiny little eggs and shellfish to bigger spoons for soups, stews, and porridges. From there, the specialized spoon took off, and you begin to see spoons strictly for scooping mustard, egg spoons for soft-boiled eggs of every sort, double-ended spoons for getting at roasted bone marrow with each end suited for a different sized bone, spoons for getting at crab meat, and more. Until finally, the pinnacle of tableware achievement came along. The English teaspoon. In the second half of the 17th century, the English had not only discovered tea, but had taken to adding milk and sugar to it as well. And of course, you had to have a special spoon with which to stir it all together because specialization was what you did with spoons so they invented the teaspoon specifically for the job of mixing up all the things they were putting in their tea but not everyone had access to the teaspoon it was meant for the wealthy so they could better enjoy their tea the peasants could keep being peasants and stir their tea with their finger instead we presume however the teaspoon is kind of a mystery. Why did it catch on and become so nearly universal when other types of spoons did not? The French coffee spoon, for example, filled a nearly the same role at nearly the same time. And yet it remained a primarily French utensil, whereas the teaspoon took on an international appeal. Well, primarily, it seems to be a twofold answer. First, sugar. Sugar was so popular, especially in North America, and the teaspoon so adept in dishing it out from the little sugar bowl into whatever you were drinking, that wherever you had sugar, you were certain to have the teaspoon not far behind. With the growing international trade in sugar, that meant teaspoons everywhere. The second reason is the general shape and size of the teaspoon. It sits in a sweet spot, pardon the pun, between the smaller French coffee spoon and the larger dessert spoon. This maximizes its usefulness in other areas besides just the stirring of sugar into tea, and its size and shape seem particularly well calculated to be comfortably used with the human mouth, making it universally handy for a myriad of foods. Anything that useful, you just don't forget about. And so it stuck around to become the sort of prototypical spoon you think of When anyone says spoon, combine its usefulness with its status as a utensil for the wealthy, and soon everyone wanted one. And now, with all our utensils and cutlery in place, the oven warmed and cooking, and the pots and pans hard at work on the stovetop, we come to the true innovation at your Thanksgiving table, brought about by everything else and the changing ways we eat. Because you'll remember, no doubt, that we said the eating knife represented a problem. While it had been fine to eat solely with a knife for hundreds of years, people suddenly started getting upset about it, and the other ways people were eating along about the mid-1600s. Suddenly it was kind of gross to take food off the plate with your fingers and more or less stuff it directly into your mouth, only to reach out again and repeat the action. You shouldn't pick your teeth with cutlery, at least not at the table and cut your food into manageable bites that don't leave you fat-cheeked and drooling as you try to down your hunk of meat all in one go. And for heaven's sake, don't stab your neighbor in a fit of pique. No, instead, use these tools to make your meals easier, more civil, and more polite. Which is what Louis XIV was on about in 1669 when he outlawed sharp knives at the dinner table in all of France. See, He thought it was high time that the French nobility began to distinguish itself from the French peasantry, and one of the ways it could do this was to change the way meals looked at the noble table. Gone were the peasant-like eating habits and the squabbling and backbiting that used to go on. Instead, sophistication and manners were to take their place. Etiquette, in fact. A way of behaving meant to lift you above the common rabble. Soon enough, it began to occur to the rest of Europe that he might be onto to something. Maybe being a noble meant you should act like you were noble. You should exemplify the sorts of behaviors that nobility was often thought to have. Charm, a pleasant demeanor, reasonable table manners. And maybe by doing so, you could get a leg up on the competition. Because by the time the Age of Enlightenment was in full swing... Most of Europe was trying to outdo and out impress all the rest of Europe. And one of the ways you could do that was by having a complex and diverse set of rules for behavior that everyone from your country would instinctively know, but that anyone from outside would have to play catch up to figure out and use. It's no mistake that you might not know which fork is for salads and which spoon is best for soup, nor how to use them specifically to best effect. But two things are certain. First, while you're figuring it out, you'll feel out of place and awkward. And that makes you slightly more vulnerable. Which is a favorable position for the nobleman at whose table you are dining to have you in, and from which to take advantage of your awkwardness for their benefit. And second, it instantly marks you out as a person who doesn't belong there, wherever there might be. Therefore, you're much easier to keep an eye on, because everyone is watching you, making it far less likely you'll be getting away with anything nefarious. Introduce a new etiquette and catch people out. Keep them off balance and vulnerable. Until they master it. At which point, they become one of us, instead of one of them. An ally, instead of an enemy. And really... That's what it's all about. Taking the outsider and making them one of us. Which is one of the things we do with the great big American Thanksgiving traditions. Take people who are new friends and distant family. And bring them around the table to make them all part of us instead of them. All enabled by our traditions and manners. Which are themselves made possible by the utensils we use to prepare and enjoy that meal. So it seems only right, at a time when we are separated from each other, to give thanks for the things that make the meal possible, and gather us together around the table. And especially for the civilizing influence of the knife, the fork, and the spoon. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to this week's GM Word of the Week episode. We hope you enjoyed it. This episode was informed by the book, Consider the Fork, A History of How We Cook and Eat, by B. Wilson. You can find an Amazon affiliate link for the book in our episode description. We've chosen to participate in No Shave November, a month-long journey during which participants forego shaving and grooming in order to evoke conversation and raise cancer awareness. Donate the money you typically spend on shaving and grooming to educate about cancer prevention, save lives, and aid those fighting the battle instead. You can do so by joining us at the GM Word of the Week team page at noshave.org or by following the link in the episode description. Today's episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. A fork in the road if there ever was one. Music was provided by Blue.Sessions, which you can, of course, find at Sessions.Blue. Don't you always feel bad when they take away one of the spoons? It's like you ordered wrong.